0: following is a continuation in our series looking at the lies that Satan tells us. We hope you enjoy. Caitlin, to open us in prayer. Would you mind opening us up in prayer, Caitlin? Yeah, please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you just so much for this day, and thank you for letting us all be able to gather here on Zoom together. I pray that We can just listen with our hearts, Lord, for what you have to say to us tonight. And just be attentive here, Lord. And I pray that you can just show us how you love us so well throughout this week and throughout this new school year, Lord. I just thank you that we can all be here. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to start off with a little quote here. And this is by John Calvin. It says, For those who the Lord has chosen and chosen to welcome into his fellowship with him, they should prepare for themselves a life that is hard, laborious, troubled, and full of many and various kinds of evil. And what John Calvin is really trying to get across there is that if we are going to take faith in Christ, if we're going to choose to follow him daily, then it is going to be a hard thing. It's going to be full of labor. It's going to be full of various kinds of trouble and temptation, which leads us to say, wouldn't it be great if coming to Jesus would just solve all my problems, right? It would be amazing if our faith were the end-all, be-all to make our lives easier and better. And this is exactly what Satan wants you and me to believe. And we're going to touch on the reason he wants you to believe that further down in our lesson. But uh, if you're taking notes, this is kind of our main point for tonight. It's very short. Hopefully it's easy to remember. Faith does not guarantee comfort and ease. And I know that sounds very depressing. But I hope that by the end of this lesson, you're going to see uh, the great hope that we have in the midst of of that difficult truth. So, again, Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the reality of the sinful world we live in. So, would somebody like to read chapter 8, verses 20 to 22 for me? Can I get a volunteer? I got it, Trey. Awesome. Thank you, Emma. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the the <laughs> Itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what does this passage tell us about the world? It tells us that we live in a world that is physically affected by sin. Okay, so not only when Adam and Eve sinned did they fall into sin, but the whole world was tainted so creation is in bondage to this corruption this is why we have things like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes it's why things like forest fires are devastating the west coast right now and that they're so destructive it's why droughts can you know absolutely destroy vegetation and can ruin economies so the earth itself feels the effects of what happened back in genesis you know it feels the effects of the fall and it suffers because of it and We have to remember that we live in that world, right? We live in a world that is subjected to the effects of sin. So if we're going to live in a world that is affected by sin, we should expect there to be suffering, okay? He says groaning here, and Paul is showing us the lasting impact of the fall. Creation itself groans, as in the pains of childbirth, okay? I've never given birth to a child, but I would imagine that it's very painful, okay? It's not something that is easy. Creation is going through these pains, and it longs for that moment that that childbirth is over. So creation itself is groaning and waiting for things can be restored to its original state. It could be restored to a time when there was no hurricanes, fires, tornadoes, or whatever the pains that the earth feels. Creation is longing and groaning for a day when Jesus comes back. Like The physical earth is groaning for that, and that is a really cool thing to think about. So he continues uh, in verses 23 to 25. Could I get somebody to read 8, 23 to 25? Michael, would you mind reading that? And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the damage of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Not only is the earth tainted by sin, but we ourselves are. So what does this tell about ourselves? This tells us that you know our bodies are going to feel the effects of evil and sin. This is why things like Ebola and the flu, coronavirus, affects people. Okay, This is why we fight and we have wars and there's things like terrorism. This is why when you get older, your joints are going to hurt and you're going to get slower. Okay, Sin taints humanity and therefore taints the body. The Apostle Paul here is describing how we as believers in human bodies are longing and waiting for redemption. For in that hope we are saved, as we see in verse 24. So as we kind of start there looking at the fallen world, both with the physical world, but also us in our bodies, it's good for us to start there in order that we might understand that this lie, that's where Satan is trying to twist it a little bit. He wants us to think, well, you know, things aren't that bad here, therefore your life should be better. But we have to start with the understanding that we live in a fallen world. And how that affects the world around us and ourselves. So not only do we live in a fallen world, but Jesus also calls us to suffer in other ways. So turn to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles. So we're going to look at a very famous passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24. So Caitlin, would you mind reading Matthew 16, 24? Yes. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. All right, so you guys can respond to this. This isn't a, just a rhetorical question here, but what do you think Jesus means when he says, take up your cross? What do you think he means by that? Is it like the um, dying to self and living for Christ? Okay, that that is a mm-hmm. big part of it. In, just in general, what do you think the cross represents here? I think overall he's saying there's going to be things in life that you're going to suffer through and, and go through hardships. and He's saying... In order for you to follow me, you have to embrace that. So he's saying, take up your cross and follow me. So, yeah, we have to take up, we have to deny ourselves. We have to put ourselves aside and follow Jesus to deny our whole selves. That means all of our motives, all of our impulses, and especially when those things come in conflict with the claims of Jesus. And this is incredibly countercultural because we live in a world that says what? We live in a world that says you need to do everything you can to make yourself happy and you need to do everything you can to minimize your own suffering and do everything that you can to better yourself. And Jesus is saying none of that is true. doesn't mean you need to go looking for suffering, but it does mean that you need to deny yourself, and you need to look to me for your comfort and not your own actions, not your own works. So there's a a certain level of suffering that we have to go through as believers. And that sounds very pessimistic, but... I hope by the end of this you see that it's really not as bad as we think it is because there's a great hope that we have. So the act of taking up a cross and carrying it was a difficult work. Jesus is speaking about something that he himself was physically going to have to do later on. But Jesus is talking about you know, the the suffering that that he would have to go through, and he's giving us kind of an example to follow. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The wrath of God that should have caused us eternal suffering fell on him. That's a burden that he had to carry. That's a suffering that he had to take on. And that's the beautiful thing about his grace is that it could only come through that kind of suffering because the sacrifice was necessary. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, the sins that should have crushed us under the weight of guilt were given to Jesus. Again, this is the beautiful thing about grace is it could only come through this kind of suffering. In Philippians 2, verses 7 to 8, it says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So Jesus, up in heaven, could have happily just stayed there, but he chose to come down and save us. And why did he do that? He did that because he loves us, right? He purposely chose to condescend to us in order to show us that love. And he purposely condescended into a life of suffering, right? So Jesus chose a difficult road. He chose the road that took him to death. And again, this is the beautiful thing about grace is it could only come through suffering like this. But I also want you to think about the fact that Jesus also just went through the general everyday Pains of life, right? If he were here in Texas, he would be sweating with the rest of us, right? It's not like he was just immune to everything. Like, he would be sweating because he had a physical body. You know, he worked hard as a carpenter. His muscles were probably sore and weak at the end of the day after long days of carpentry. He probably had calluses all over his hands and feet because of his labor. So he physically suffered in this world as well. So, Jesus lived here. He understands the suffering, which means he can empathize and sympathize with us as we go through ours. And this lie that we're talking about tonight, this false promise that Jesus is going to be the fix-all to all your problems, what Satan wants to do is he wants you to forget that Jesus himself suffered. This false promise leads people to be focused on their own problems rather than the person of Jesus himself. This lie wants to convince you that, well, you just need to get all your problems taken care of and then you will be happy. But what Jesus is saying is that's not what's going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is me, like trusting in me and living unto me. That's going to bring you true joy. This lie is going to lead people to see Jesus as a solution instead of a savior. And that's not how we need to view Christ. People are then so unequipped to face suffering when they view Jesus as this fix it like this band-aid like if I can just put Jesus on this then all of a sudden my life will be better and we're going to touch on this a little bit in small groups but I don't want you to leave here and say that you know faith in Christ never makes your life better it does make you better and you know why can anybody think of one major reason why your life is better because you have Jesus it's a pretty big one eternal life in heaven with him Yeah, you're not going to go to hell, right? (laughs) That That is a huge benefit to your life. That means your life is better, okay? But what this lie is really pressing in is like the everyday uh, general sufferings that we go through. Like if you just believe in Jesus, then then all of a sudden you'll have money and you'll have fame and you'll get all these fun things and your life will just be a lot better. Jesus really wants us to lean into the suffering because in the midst of suffering, we're going to trust in him more. So I, I love this illustration because I think it's really, really cool, but also very helpful. So has anybody ever been to Colorado? Okay, so what's in Colorado? Cool air. Okay, besides cool air, there's something very tall in Colorado. called Mountains. The Rocky Mountains, right? And the Rocky Mountains essentially cut the state in half. A really unique thing about the eastern side of Colorado is that it's one of the few places in the world where there's cows and buffalo that kind of roam in the same areas. And when storms come in to Colorado, they typically come over the mountains, over the west, and they start heading east. Now, cows and buffalo react very differently to these storms. And cows, when they see a storm coming, what do you think they do? What do we normally do when we see some sort of suffering coming? They run. We run, right? So we take off in the other direction. So cows actually start heading east when there's a storm. Now, what's the problem with cows? Do you think they're very fast? I've never seen a cow run a marathon, so they're not very fast. So they cannot outrun a storm. So actually what they're doing when they're going east is they're prolonging their suffering in the midst of that storm. They're making their time in that storm longer as they run away. But what do you think the buffalo does? The buffalo looks at it, and they wait till it gets over the mountain, and then they run towards it. So what do you think is happening in that moment? The buffalo is saying, look, this thing's coming, (laughs) and there's no stopping it. So we're going to go straight into it, right? We're just going to run towards it. And essentially what it does is it it actually minimizes the effects of the storm. It actually minimizes the time that it's the middle of that storm. And please don't hear me say that we need to minimize our pain at all times. Like, don't hear me say that. The point of me telling you that story is that how we face our struggles, how we face the hardships of life is very important. And if we turn and run away from our struggles and our hardships, we're never going to find satisfaction in Jesus. And when we look at them and, and recognize them for what they are, And we face them in a way that's God-honoring. And instead of running away, we actually lean into them and lean into Jesus as we're going through those. We're going to see Jesus shaping us, drawing us closer to him, and actually giving us a lot of joy and gratitude in the midst of those things. So we don't want to believe that lie that Jesus will just make everything better. We want to believe the truth that Jesus is better. Like We want to believe that, that Jesus has already made our lives better. We don't need something more. We just need him. So we need to remember that there are times where we will suffer. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Following Jesus was never meant to be a simple task. Discipleship is hard. It is tough, but it is worth every second. So I want to conclude with this because I think this is helpful for us. Okay, If we believe this lie, that Jesus will just make everything better for you, He'll make you rich. He'll make you powerful. He'll give you a nice car. He will give you lots of good friendships and relationships. If we believe that lie, there's a logical conclusion to that. If Jesus is supposed to make our lives easier and better, and my life isn't actually easier and better, then that leads me to choose between two things. One that either says, well, my faith just isn't good enough, so I need to try harder, right? I need to do better. If Jesus is supposed to make my life better and it's not getting better, then I've got to do something. And we just keep going and going. And we feed into this cycle that we'll never be satisfied with. This is why things like, have you guys ever heard of the health and wealth gospel? The health and wealth gospel says if you just pray hard enough, then Jesus will give you enough money. If you just have enough faith, then Jesus is going to do all these things for you. The Bible never teaches that. What the Bible does teach is that we need to rest and trust in him We don't need to just wish away our problems. We need to give those problems to Jesus. So the first logical conclusion is that we're not doing enough and we need to try harder. The second thing is what Satan really wants to get you at is if faith in Jesus is supposed to make my life better and it's not actually getting better, then following Jesus isn't worth it because the results are not what I want. And that's the reason why Satan wants you to believe this lie is because if he gets you to believe it, then he gets you to a place that you will always be dissatisfied. You will never be happy. And that's right where he wants you. C.S. Lewis shockingly wrote this in one of his books called God in the Dock. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of wine would do that. If you want religion to make you really, really comfortable and really happy, I don't recommend Christianity. Okay. And reading that's a little bit depressing, but if if you think about what he's saying is he knows following Christ is not going to be a life of ease. It's not going to be a life of comfort. He knows it's a life of suffering but it's worth every second for him. And it's worth every second for us. So I want to conclude by reading uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus clearly shows us that he didn't come down here to experience an easy redemption for you and me. His life was full of hardships and sufferings, namely his death on a cross. And he did what? He did it with joy. He did it because he loves us so much. John Piper writes this, God sent his son into the world to suffer in the place for sinners. Every part of his saving work was accomplished by his suffering. In the life and death of Jesus, suffering finds its ultimate purpose and ultimate explanation. It exists so that Christ may show us his greatness, show us his glory by suffering himself and overcoming that suffering. Everything, everything that Christ accomplished for us sinners, he accomplished through suffering. And everything that we will ever enjoy will come because of his suffering. So suffering is so essential for us doesn't mean we need to be masochistic. doesn't mean we need to be looking for trouble. doesn't mean we need to be looking for pain and sorrow and hardship. But it does mean that when those things come, we don't look to ourselves. We look to Christ. What do we do when things aren't easy? The one thing that people of God need is a recognition of who God is, what he's done, and what he promises that he will continue to do for us. And in that, we can rest on that truth. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll split into small groups and kind of unpack this a little bit more. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are with us in the midst of our sorrow. You're with us in the midst of our suffering. And, Father, I just pray for these students. I know that they themselves go through hardships. They themselves go through difficult things. And I just pray that you would be... A reminder to them of the hope that they have, Lord, that you would remind them each and every day of the great hope that we have of eternal life with you and how that affects who we are now and how we experience this world. So I just pray that, Lord, that you would make that a reality for us, Father, that we would trust in you. And we praise in Christ's holy and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an eye out for more audio upcoming from WYN.